All righty, are you ready to get started? Let's go. Acts chapter 25, Acts chapter 25. <laughs> Good luck, I know. All right, yeah, there we go. That usually helps. <laughs> Turn out the lights. Find a seat. Make your way in your Bible to Acts 25, where we're going to pick up where we left off. Paul in court again and uh, defending himself for the crime of being a Christian, a Christ follower, sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to take a look at that again after we ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we just acknowledge once again our helpless condition. Uh, these truths are spiritually discerned. We need your help, Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our understanding that we might have eyes that see and ears that can truly hear uh, what your Spirit is saying. Lord, you, it's no accident anybody's here. We believe that you uh, direct our footsteps. And so, Lord, you have a reason, and it's a good one. <laughs> to reveal your love and your plan for us who believe. We ask your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you are quite familiar with the saying, if at first you don't succeed. Very good. You've heard that one, have you? Well, we've seen this uh, really lived out quite literally in the judicial sense of that word, haven't we, with the Apostle Paul, who is um, on trial. And he's been on trial, it seems, forever here in the latter portions of the book of Acts. Um, Paul's accusers have not succeeded in getting him condemned to death, which is their ultimate goal. Uh, so since they have not succeeded, what are they going to try to do? They're going to try, <laughs> try again, but in the literal sense of that word. They're going to try Paul in the court of law. So just for some context to get you caught up, uh, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem bearing gifts and bringing the good news that the Lord has planted churches all over the Mediterranean there in the first century. Um, and so he, uh, he was apprehended there by gospel haters, people who don't appreciate uh, the same truths that we love and embrace in the Bible. They arrest him and they tried him before the Jewish Supreme Court. You'll remember how that went. It didn't go very well. In the middle of Paul's defense, he said something that pitted the Pharisees against the Sadducees. They were at each other's throat and the, and, and the courtroom was clear. And so uh, next we have um, the high, high priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees not succeeding, so they're going to try Paul again in secular court, this time under a Roman governor uh, who occupies the land of Israel, and that presiding judge was Governor Felix. You remember that, and that's what we've been talking about last week. Now, after that hearing, uh, weak-willed Governor Felix decides to put off uh, making a decision for a couple reasons. One, he wants to keep his Jewish constituents who are really up in arms about Paul happy because happy constituents makes an easier job for him. So on the other hand, he also uh, wants to keep Paul around. It seems he's, he's really entertained 
And he calls him in. He listens to him all the time. Not enough to become a Christian, but he certainly appreciates uh, the way Paul shares. And not only that, last time we heard, the other reason he's stringing Paul out under house arrest is that he's hoping for a bribe. Now, did you scratch your head along with me like, what? how's Paul the prisoner going to give him enough money to make a difference? The guy's already wealthy. He wants a lot of money in that bribe. Well, the Philippians are sending Paul aid. And under house arrest, Paul is able to see visitors. So these Gentile, well-to-do Christians are coming in like Lydia, the business owner, the seller of purple cloth who's very wealthy. That catches Felix's eye. And now he's hoping, if I stretch this out long enough, somebody like Lydia is going to come to me and say, hey, man, this is going on. Is there anything we could do to help facilitate this process and get our man out, right? But, of course, they're going to have to wait a long time before a Christian will do that. And so that never happens. And that brings us up now to this chapter, chapter 25, because two years has gone by while Felix is just spinning the wheels, right? But uh, he gets recalled by Rome, and he's replaced by another governor with a similar-sounding name. His name is Porcius Festus. Now, don't worry, it's not contagious. (laughs) It's just his name, and now... Chapter 25, where we dig in now, there's been a swap of governors, and now really Paul is going to find himself starting all over again because he's been left in this prison. This new guy comes in, what to do with Paul, and now that's where we pick up, where Paul's accusers, they haven't forgotten, they still haven't succeeded, and you know what they say when at first you don't succeed? A little more... Love and enthusiasm. Ready? If at first you don't succeed. All right. Verse 1. Verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus, new governor, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul's being held at Caesarea and I myself are going there soon. Uh, Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. So let's pause there. If you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, a savvy new governor, a savvy new governor. Now, hopefully we'll get to the end of the chapter and uh, we are going to see what comes of this new uh, predicament that Paul finds himself in. Now, his predecessor, Felix, was a bad man. He was the one who wanted to, uh, to find a bribe there. But this new governor, uh, historians are, are kinder. He's a better man. He wants to do the right thing. He's not perfect, as we'll see, but he's definitely uh, better than uh, Felix. Now, the way to remember that with Felix and Festus is that Festus is bestus, (laughs) right? (laughs) And maybe because he wears a Vestus. (laughs) Oh, all right. 
Achoo. If only I could reach that symbol over there. All right, so what do we got? We got a new governor uh, over Judea, right? So he's in charge of Jerusalem because Rome is occupying Israel. And so uh, that's his job. Now, of course, he's just been installed, so he's smart. He's, he goes down to visit the heart of the religious nation there in Jerusalem. He wants to see what he's up against, right? And he wants to make sure that uh, he schmoozes well with these leaders. And so he leaves the palace at Caesarea where Paul is. And he goes down 60 miles south up to Jerusalem. There he meets these leaders. And you know what's going on, right? It's very politics as usual. A lot of tours, the entourage going from location. You can imagine them going around the temple sites. Maybe they stop and have a little photo op and he holds a baby or two, you know. Uh, they have a nice kosher lunch. You know, they're, both parties have agendas, all right? His agenda is uh, to have good citizens. It'll make his job a lot easier. And so you, you hear uh, them requesting as a favor. So he comes down and says, hey, listen, I'm the new guy in town. How are we going to make this work really well? So as a favor, well, we do have a favor, and thank you for asking, uh, governor. And they start to pour out their complaints about Paul. The Jews are looking for uh, something as well, and that would be uh, to condemn Paul to death. <laughs> the best Christian who's ever lived keeps his conscience clean before God and man, never breaks a law, not a criminal. He's filled with love and compassion. He cares about people. He wants them to go to heaven. And, and he's on trial for his life. He's going to be put to death because he, he lives like you if you're a Christ follower. Only better, and that's what's gotten him in trouble. No offense to you, right? <laughs> He's just a really good Christian, and really good Christians often have to suffer persecution. It is written, it's our destiny. Paul says, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. You can't be filled with God's truth and God's light in a world like this that wants nothing to do with God or his absolute truths and not take a little heed. That's what the Bible says. And so we see this happening for Paul. Paul. So two years have passed. The new governor's down in Jerusalem and you would think maybe they forgot about it or the Jewish leaders maybe got distracted. I mean, two years is a long time, but no, hate in the human heart left two years or 20 years, it, it just grows. Any kind of vice that you leave unchecked in your human soul is like a good investment. It grows with time, all right? And that's the way it's gone on here. And so I just imagine here in verses two and three, you know, the elderly, soft-spoken, some of the leaders, the religious robes and the gentle asking of an urgent favor. Here's how I hear it. They say, oh, governor, you're holding a very dangerous Jewish prisoner down there in Caesarea. He's a real bad apple. Oh, if you only knew, what a nightmare. Oy vey, this man. All right, now listen. Uh, Jews can make fun of Jews, all right? So you can't do it, most of you. But it's okay. I can get away with this, all right? It, it's just been a two-year-long bureaucratic disaster, Your Honor. 
uh, it could have been resolved peacefully a couple years ago, but somehow you guys, you Romans, got involved. We were doing it right here, like trying to kill him. <laughs> uh, and that's how it got kicked up to the Roman courts, because they were trying to kill him. But he leaves that part out. And so uh, he says, really, please, please, please transfer our Jewish troublemaker down here where we can murder or further the investigation. <laughs> Continue the hearing in a manner worthy of the glory of Rome. Okay? Verses 4 and 5, you've got Festus kind of wrinkling up his brow. I picture Festus saying he either smells something fishy or the Holy Spirit is working in his heart unbeknownst to him. You know, the Jews went a tad over with the emotion. Uh, he doesn't feel like staying a long time down there. He has, a, he has a new palace to go live in. So he's got reasons to just say, hey, I'm hesitant about that. Here's what he says. Paul's in Caesarea with me. How about this? You guys come to me and press charges there. In fact, if he's done anything wrong, and P.S., I'm in charge and we'll do this my way. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Right from the jump, uh, you, uh, you don't tell me what to do, but little does he know whatever forces are at work to give him that hesitancy is God protecting the Apostle Paul's life. Because if he said, sure, and he arranged that, Paul was uh, in harm's way. They were amb waiting to a second time now ambush him and kill him. Can you imagine their sad, uh, sanctimonious faces, crestfallen when he doesn't agree with their plan? God's always trying to protect you, always, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Psalm 91, verse 11. We don't even know the half of it. When we get to heaven, we're going to know all the little ways God was intervening and protecting us. Unbeknownst to people who are involved, Festus doesn't have the slightest clue that he just foiled a plot to kill the apostle Paul. But the Lord is at work. God is at work. You know, Paul has had a, a two-year, all-expense-paid vacation at Herod's palace where he's afforded being under house arrest. He has some freedoms there. People are visiting him. He needed a rest. After those missionary journeys, the Lord says, hey, man, you got to rest for a couple years. I got just the idea, right? And all at the expense of who? Rome. Thank you very much. And as I mentioned, he's writing letters. He's got six more books for the New Testament to write. Where better than an uninterrupted private little room in Herod's palace, guarded and protected by who? Rome. So God's at work. God's at work. You know, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I'm just thinking about it, where Paul says to the Philippians from prison, he says, I want you all to know that my situation has actually turned around and is working to advance the gospel. Everybody in the place knows about the Lord now and why I'm a prisoner. The gospel's going forth. And, and so God has a way of protecting and working in ways that sometimes we don't even realize. And so the Jewish leaders are asking for this favor. It's denied. 
One quick note before we move on. These guys, you know, it's only been 25 years since death and resurrection of Jesus. A lot of those guys were the ones who tried Jesus. They're still alive at 25 years out. All the uh, disciples are alive, except James. The whole Roman world is, is filled with, with Christians and new churches. And these guys are still hardening their hearts. They were this close to God in a human body, watching lepers get their fingers back and men born blind uh, seeing for the very first time and people being raised up from the dead. These same guys who wanted to kill Jesus want to kill Paul as well. One writer said this, notice the sad state of Israel's leaders here still wanting to kill Paul the apostle. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has been completely ignored by them. And, it was at the, and this was at the very heart of their hardening, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which was God's second appeal to the nation of Israel, was also opposed on every level. The leaders were doing the same kinds of things that brought down on their heads those awful words in Matthew 23, the woes to the Pharisees that Jesus had pronounced. Now, 10 years from this point are on the clock until all of Jerusalem is leveled to the ground. 1.1 million Jews will be dead in 10 years and not one stone of that glorious seventh wonder of the world temple will stand. Not one stone. And when you go to Israel and you see the remains, that's what happened. And Jesus predicted it because you hardened your heart and didn't recognize your visitation that God came to you and was right there and you said, no, thank you. These are the guys. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1 a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. And that's what's happening. We're watching like a slow train wreck. The Apostle Paul is protected and kept by the power of the Holy Spirit. And these guys, just going from bad to worse until one day they stand before God and God not sending anybody to hell God sends nobody to hell on that great and awesome day. He'll stand and sit on his throne, rather, and judge. And he will say to that person, thy will be done. Because 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 says that it is God's will that all come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so God wills that none perish, but that all come to him and have life. And so it's just sad. It's just sad, before we move on, just to see these guys fomenting hate and hardening their hearts and of all things with the best missionary in the world and that, the Son of God, 25 years earlier. All right, so the courtroom's uh, clear now after spending eight or 10 days with them. Verse 12, he went down to Caesarea and the next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before them. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down with Festus there from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they couldn't prove. 
Then Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Governor Festus, wishing now to do the Jews a favor, says to Paul, Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answers, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar, you will go. <laughs> awesome, Paul. The very smart apostle, in fact, that could be your second point. The first one, the savvy new governor. The second, the very smart apostle. And, and so a week has gone by with the new governor uh, schmoozing around in Jerusalem, right? And uh, interesting word in the Greek for spending time with them down there. It means to uh, literally rub away time. So it's an idiom that means to smooth out the wrinkles that just happened, what just happened. They said, will you release Paul and send him down here so that we could uh, try him? And he said, no, you come, you come to me. So now he's spending a week to 10 days just kind of trying to make that all uh, be smooth again. So now we talk about our hero, Paul. He's well-rested, isn't he? He's very focused. He's had a couple years you know, to gather his thoughts. He's very well-spoken. He's got a lot of peace. And he's called before the new judge. And the Jews, right on top of it. So uh, Festus comes back. The next morning, the Jews had come back with him. And they're ready to spring into action with this new uh, scenario. Now, your verse tells you that the Jews, the nasty unbelievers, Pharisees and Sadducees, surround Paul with all kinds of serious accusations. Now, I, I just, that's terrible. With their bony fingers in his face and their slanderous, murderous tongues wagging. You know, I wonder if he thought about Psalm 22, the Lord's messianic suffering psalm, where it says, many bulls surround me, strong bulls encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey Open their mouths wide against me. Be near to me, God, for there is none to help. You know, imagine the depth of character and the Holy Spirit's work in this guy's heart that he doesn't, he doesn't give up. He doesn't hate them. He doesn't strike out or lash out. He still loves them. He wants them to be saved. He's like the master who when they're nailing him to a cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. It's the kind of heart in this guy. Do you, keep in mind what Paul's been through and all because of these guys. And yet he can stand there calm, cool, and collected and not cop an attitude like that. It's very awesome. So your text says in uh, verse 7, the charges, the false charges fly. What are they saying? Insurrection. Oh, he's always, he wants to overthrow Rome. Uh, high treason. What does that mean? 
Well, he worships and proclaims a different king other than Caesar. And then blasphemy, the worst of all. He brought a non-Jewish person into the holy place. It wasn't blasphemy. It was more like blah, 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 right. No charges uh, are sticking there. So since there's no sh- not one shred of evidence against him, his job as the accused in a Roman court, very easy. He simply has to deny the charges because the onus or the responsibility is on those who are prosecuting in a Roman court of law, you make your, your, your charge out there, and then you show the evidence. And so now Paul says, really, not guilty on all accounts. He says, I committed no crime against Roman laws, nor have I transgressed against any religious laws, nor have I broken any protocol at the sacred temple. And just when he says that, if we were watching a movie, the little dramatic, scary music would start right now. All right, because he just says, hey, I, I'm, I'm innocent. And then you hear, bum, 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 bum. All right, you know what's going to happen now? All the wrangling, all the Jewish, we call it kvetching. To kvetch is to complain and to nag and to, you know, be obnoxious about everything. I, I don't do it, but... <laughs> Unbelievable. Now I know how Paul felt. (laughs) So the poor Gentile Roman uh, Festus, he sees all of this kvetching. What is he? He's overwhelmed. He's like, God, thank you that I was born a Gentile. You know, and he's looking at all of this. He doesn't get it. He doesn't want to get it. He's confused. He's at a loss. And so the scary music starts. And he goes, hmm, on second thought, and the Jews all go, Paul, what do you think about going down to Jerusalem to be tried there? This is just a little bit much. They're religious charges. Let's let's just go. Paul gets it. Paul knows. Here they go again. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. And so... The Jews are salivating, or whatever that word is. <laughs> oh, thank you. Such experts. Come on up here and give it a try. That's not as easy as it looks, all right? <laughs> That's what you kvetch. I'm kvetching. <laughs> all right, so on second thought, what do you think? Oh, a Roman citizen. <laughs> Paul knows exactly what he's doing. He's just going to drop a bombshell here. He knows the laws. He knows his rights. He knows he hasn't been charged. He's a Roman citizen. He knows which moves on the board he can move. And he's got a move that nobody sees coming. He's going to appeal to Caesar. And so uh, he's going to drop the bombshell. So he says, paraphrase 10 through 11. Your Honor, he says, hey, you want to go to Jerusalem, man? Come on. And, and, And Paul says, Your Honor, come on. I'm in a Roman court where I should be. I'm charged with with Roman crimes. I've committed none of these things. They don't like me or what I teach or who I believe in, but that's not a crime, and I know that you know that I'm innocent. Now, if I did something worthy of death, I'm not afraid to die, but this nonsense has got to stop, and if there's nothing to these charges, no, no. 
I'm not willing to go with them. And actually, he doesn't say this, but actually, you can't make me. I appeal to Caesar. So he says, I know what they want. They're going to try to kill me. You want me to go because you want to make them all happy, which it says in your text. But you know what? You can't make me go because I know my rights. I'm not going because I appeal to Caesar. Boom. The whole court. He appealed to Caesar. So, so Festus doesn't even have a charge against him. So he knows, oh my, I have to, by law, send him to Rome now because he's appealed as a Roman citizen. I don't even have a charge to write against him, which is going to be coming up later in the text. And so Paul is able to uh, use, listen, we've been down this road before. He uses the system that's in place, the legal system, and it's as if he dialed 911 and he, and he uses the system to protect his life when he feels that his interests and God's interests and the gospel's interest is in harm's way. He's not afraid to, in faith and in Jesus' name, to use the God-given practical system of the legal courts to use his rights. He could have said, you know what? Sure, I'll go to Jerusalem. I've got a word from the Lord. He said, the Lord appeared to me. He didn't say this, but we know the Lord appeared to him and said, Paul, take heart. You're going to Rome to testify. Now, Paul could have said, I've got a word from the Lord. Jerusalem, Alexandria, wherever. Go ahead, let's do this. Instead, he sets his danger and he says, oh, no, my life and God's will for my life is in jeopardy. So I'm going to align myself with, to the best of my ability to, put, to, to follow what I believe God wants me to do and use the practical systems of the world, though I trust God is working through them. Do you see? A lot of Christians are just, man, they're down on doctors, they're down on lawyers, they're down on therapists, they're down on police. Come on. Paul's not afraid to say, I'm going to stand up for my rights here. Well, what about your thinking? What about Paul himself telling the Corinthians when they want to sue each other in court? Why not rather be wrong, just drop the case? Well, what was he really saying? First of all, you got two Christians suing each other for a couple sheep, you know? Uh, Your Honor, my sheep wandered into his pasture and his dog got loose and, and, and destroyed my sheep, you know? Why not rather be wrong? then disgrace yourselves before the unbelieving world that's looking in like that. Do you see that's what that's about? That's not pick up and, and get a lawyer because you're being sued by somebody who's unrighteous and wicked. That's not that. It's a totally different thing. You have to think and pray and use the wisdom that God gives us and seek out godly counsel and figure these things out for yourself. What about turn the other cheek? What about it? Do you really think that when God really expects you when someone strikes you, he expects you to go, hey, what about this side? Do you think so? It's not the meaning of the verse. The meaning of the verse is to resolve in your heart not to become hateful and vengeful and uh, to retaliate 
in the same kind of spirit. That's what it is. It's to say, you know, you insult me up here, go ahead, insult me again. It really doesn't matter to me because I'm looking to God who will vindicate me in that regard. We don't take that up in our own hands. And what about going the extra mile? Since we're on the subject, let's just take a little time. Going the extra mile. Well, that means to surprise unreasonable people with your generous and willing spirit to go above and beyond, right? How about if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat? Well, what about that? That's like someone sues you for your bike, throw in your scooter, too. You know, uh, here's what it means. Keep your heart clean. Don't be a little tit-for-tat kind of person. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Matthew 6, with all of those scriptures about loving your enemy, never means to put yourself in harm's way on purpose when you have the God-given means to protect yourself. Now, every situation that you're thinking about right now in your heart, because I see it happening, I see it in your eyes, you know, listen, you have to weigh that out in prayer before the Lord and follow his lead and go get godly counsel and all of that. But I'll tell you what, listen, Doing nothing isn't more spiritual than availing uh, yourself to the God-given means on this earth to be practically minded as well as being spiritually minded as well, too. Amen? Amen. A little louder. Oh, that felt better in there. All right, so uh, Paul said, the the courtroom's cleared (laughs) once again, 13 through 22. Now, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, arrive at Caesarea to pay their respects to the new governor. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, hey, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it's not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he's faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. Now, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead... They had some points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, O king. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. That's when it happened. (laughs) Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision. I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, hmm, I would like to hear this man myself, he replied. Tomorrow you will hear him. Let's pause there. Oh, yes, you will. You will hear. Because the Holy Spirit is is, is drawing this man to be saved and to hear the gospel. So we've had the savvy new governor, right? We've also got the smart apostle. You ready for three? The curious king. 
All right, so what's, what's exciting to me is that God always keeps his word. Do you remember when nobody would have believed back in Acts 9 when this murderous Saul, who's Paul, was converted on the road to Damascus? He was blinded. And the Lord told Ananias, Brother Ananias, go down and minister to this guy. And Ananias says, hey, are you kidding me, Lord? He kills people like me. And the Lord said, shh, listen up. Brother, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. So listen to me. God's word, even when it seems far-fetched, it comes to pass. Every single promise and prediction and prophecy is going to come to pass. And there is no wisdom and no plan or any knowledge that can thwart the hand of God from accomplishing it. Amen. This guy is going to speak before kings. Whoa, Acts chapter 25. King Agrippa before kings. I want to hear this guy. Of course you do. Acts chapter 9 said he was going to speak to you. And so now we have him coming up. So let's get a grip on who King Agrippa is. All right, I got a little slide for you because he comes from a long line of Herods, and there are a lot of Herods, uh, but he comes from a long line of serpents. All right, here we go. This guy, King Agrippa, his great-grandfather is the one who ordered the infants to and under to be massacred. That's his great-grandfather. Then his grandfather is the Herod, who beheads John the Baptist at a birthday party to please his wife. What would you like, honey? The, the, the daughter first, the dancing daughter. What would you like on your birthday? Mom, what do you want? Oh, I'd like the head of John the Baptist. So she goes to grandfather and says, you know what I want? Give me the head of John. He didn't want to do it, but weak-willed as he is, like his father. The father of King Agrippa II is the killer of James in Acts chapter 12. And now Paul stands before the next one in line. This is a cobra. <laughs> so listen, you know what I thought when I read this? Thank God there's a Rhineman who preaches the gospel and represents Christ and the truth beyond me. And there is. And all the madness that came before me with all the unbelief and all the alcoholism and all the struggles and all the chaos and all the trouble and all the legal issues and all the 911 calls and all of that stopped with my father and my father to me and me to mine. When that doesn't happen, we have a moral obligation, not only for our own souls, but for those who follow after us to stop the craziness. This is madness. But not one of them said, this is crazy, Dad. You're killing babies. Who cares? There's a king in there. He's going to take my job, and how about you? If I'm not king, then you will not be heir to the throne. 
And that kind of thinking and that kind of craziness and sinful, selfish ambition got a hold from generation to generation to generation, defy God, kill his prophets, resist God, and what? End up destroyed. That's where that goes. I'm feeling better now. <laughs> so there he is standing, well, wanting at least to hear uh, the Apostle Paul. And so they're biding their time. Let's just wrap it up here, what's, what we just read. And uh, they're biding their time. And so uh, the governor says to this Jewish king, the Jewish king has a little plot of earth there in Jerusalem. He's responsible for it. It's Herod, right? And so the governor, Festus, says to him, hey, king, you're a Jew. You know, maybe you couldn't figure this out. Got an interesting case. Left over from the last administration. I kind of inherited a problem. His name is Paul. All right. You're a Jew. Love to hear your thoughts. Now, the Jews in Jerusalem want to put this guy to death. All they do is chant, kill Paul, kill Paul, kill Paul. Uh, but when I heard the case, I was totally surprised. The charges are nothing like I expected, like murder, kidnap, robbery. No. They start arguing religion and talking about some dead guy named Jesus who Paul's claiming is actually alive. How sad. Some dead guy named Jesus? Is that the best you can do? Is that all you've heard? You've listened to the greatest missionary heaven has ever sent to the earth. The greatest Bible scholar, the writer of 13 New Testament books has spoken to you. Some dead guy named Jesus. I'm not religious. I try to do the right thing. I'm basically a good person. Oh, you've heard that before? All this talk about some dead guy named Jesus. Some dead guy named Jesus. Are you kidding me? God incarnated through a human womb becomes the God-man, no father, walking the earth that he himself spoke into existence. To go to a cross and lay himself down on a piece of wood he created willingly in love to bear the punishment of not a city of sinners, but the world of sinners to bear in his body the weight of that sin until blood was coming out of his pores. Death, and resurrection, and new life and the Holy Spirit given. And Festus, all you can say is it's about some dead guy named Jesus who Paul says is alive. That's the way some people are. You harden your heart. It's all about some dead guy. That's not the way it was presented to you, sir. It's the way you've interpreted and heard it by continually rejecting, rejecting, and rejecting. Now, it's just nonsense to you about some dead guy, Jesus. So, Paul's in trouble because... Dead religions and vain philosophies and wrangling spiritualities not threatening, but a living Lord inside of our hearts raising us from the dead is, and so that's why he's in trouble. It's interesting, you know, the funny joke about when somebody wants to break up with somebody, they sit down, they don't have the nerve to say they have a problem with the person, so they say, hey, listen, it's, it's not you, it's me, right? <laughs> 
And everybody, that's code for, really, it is you, but <laughs> I really don't want to hurt your feelings. But God uses this same statement over and over again. He says, listen, my people, it's not you. It's me they have a problem with. Jesus said, keep that in mind. If the world gives you a hard time, just remember what they did to me. I'm quoting, paraphrasing what Jesus actually said. And so Paul is in trouble. You'll be in trouble, and that's the way it is uh, because we represent him in a world that really doesn't want to hear from him. So Festus says uh, to the Jewish king, um, all this God stuff, I'm no Jew, quite frankly. I'm not very religious, so I'm sort of at a loss. I'm over my head. I suggested he return to Jerusalem to stand trial there, and that's when it happened. He appeals to Caesar. Uh, he throws us a curveball. Legally, I'm obliged, so he's going to Rome, and King Agrippa says, wow, what a story. I've heard about this guy. What a celebrity you got. I want to hear this guy, too. And he says, guess what? You're in luck. He's speaking tomorrow morning, both services. <laughs> <laughs> They think it's a hearing. Oh, no. It's a crusade. It's an evangelistic outreach to these people in Caesarea, but they don't see it that way. Let's finish up. Verse 23 to the end. So the next day, Agrippa, king, and Bernice, his sister, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but... Because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. <laughs> I love this part. Therefore, this is the reason they're meeting. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, Jewish King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. Love 27 for I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. You think? <laughs> Unbelievable. So I could just see Nero. Nero. Nero saying, okay, next. Okay, we got this guy. What's his name? Paul. What has he done? <laughs> well, glad you asked, Nero. He uh, really is a bad guy. Yes. Uh, well, he makes a lot of people really, really angry. Okay, so what has he done? Um, well, what's written in the letter there? Uh, uh, nothing. So you mean to tell me, Nero, that I'm going to listen to this Jewish prophet because no one can figure out if he's done anything right or wrong? That's what Festus wants to avoid. So he's called a meeting of the whole city, and he addresses the whole group, not just the king. He says, maybe you all can help a guy like me, because <laughs> he, he threw us a curveball. He appealed to Caesar before I could even figure it out, so now 
I don't even know what to say. Maybe you guys listen to him. We'll have him preach a little of what he calls the gospel, and we'll have him share his testimony, and then you guys help me form charges against him. That'll stick. And the crowd's like, really? <laughs> wow. I think that they were a little bit surprised too. So what does this say? It says, with great pomp, they came in. That means with a lot of bling. All right, listen, the doors, oh, they loved this back in the day. They still love it. The doors swing wide. The lights, the torches, the pomp and circumstance just means the trumpets, the music. Ladies and gentlemen, from wherever, this is whomever, and this is their job title. Oh, everybody erupts. Great pomp. So you've got the scarlet and the purple, you've got the trumpets, you've got the burnished brass, the silk, the jewels, the feathers, the marble, uh, and the gold. But sadly, it means nothing. It means nothing in the eyes of heaven. All that bling don't mean a thing if you don't know the king. <laughs> Come on, you like that? I worked so hard on that. <laughs> oh, you're so kind. All right. So who's in the palace? And by the way, I got a picture of the remains of that amphitheater. We've been there. Yeah, it exists. You know why? Because the Bible's true. And everything the Bible says can be verified. You just go and dig around a little bit. Whoops, there you go. A little rock with Pontius Pilate's name on it, which they found a few years ago. You just, it's verified, it's right there. So Paul stands in that packed theater with this, with, well, you know who's in there? The who's who of Caesarea. Everybody, anybody who's anybody is there. The government officials, the business entrepreneurs, the, the council members, the military, academia, you name it. They're all there now with great pomp and circumstances. If it were today, you'd hear the paparazzi going crazy. All right, they all come in and then he commands this. Bring forth the prisoner. The door opens and shuffles. Very unimpressive Paul, the apostle. Hunched over, he limped because he was beaten three times with Roman rods as a formal punishment, three times. Five times he received of the Jews 39 lashes. It is, he was stoned by, to death and the Lord raised him up with, with rocks, smashing him. He was a wreck. He looked terrible. He was very weak and unimpressive in stature. But who are, who are the... The, the angels applauding. Who, who is heaven applauding and cheering? Who has the dignity and, and the authority in that room? These godless pagans with the pomp and the circumstance or the, the greatest Christian who's ever walked the earth? Oh, Jesus over and over again says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first on that great day. There's a great reversal coming when all the King Agrippas and the Bernices and the Felixes and the Festuses are really caught by surprise. Whoops! And then the weak things of this world, 
the lowly things of this world, the, the world, the things that the world says is insignificant. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God uses us and those things to confound the Agrippas and the pomp of this world. What a contrast. I got a picture of Paul, um, El Greco, the mid Middle Ages, he a uh, famous painter. They call him El Greco, the Greek, because no one could pronounce his name. It's Dominikos Theotokopoulos. It's a little long. El Greco's a lot easier. <laughs> There's a lot of historians through the ages who wrote about what he looked like. This is everything I've ever read about describing the Apostle Paul. It was not an attractive man. Neither was his Lord and Savior. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. There was nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ in his human form that was attractive. He was not handsome. There was nothing about him that drew your eye to him. Not like this world. And, and you know, I for one don't understand making a movie about the Son of God with a, with a model, all right? I, I, I don't understand. I'm all for the Son of God, the movie, but you know what? Ladies and gentlemen, I hate to be the one to tell you, Jesus did not look like him. He plays the Son of God. He does a great job, you know? I like those kinds of movies. I read my Bible. That's where I get my theology. Uh, because the, the movies Hollywood puts out as Christian as it is, they always fall short, you know? But one thing I can say for sure, Jesus did not look like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, or Pastor Jim, for that matter. <laughs> Come on. You know he looks like him. <laughs> Only Pastor Jim is better looking. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, that's enough of him. Enough of him and his hair. Please. <laughs> Constantly staring after a look at that, like a rug. Like, you know, please. All right, where were we? I digress. Listen. 1 John 2.17 and Matthew 13.43, they're on one slide together. The world and all its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God, the world and all the pomp and all the fame and all the glory and all the sensuality and all of that, gone. Except for the one who does the will of God, they'll live forever. And listen, you want to know bling? Then the righteous, Jesus says, at the end of a narrative about the end of the world, he says, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, use them. All right, that's what that means. Listen, you want to know who the true luminaries of life are? Not the luminaries of King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus and Felix and everybody in that grand ballroom, wherever it was. It was the crumpled, hunched over broken body, nobody, Paul. Purchased by the blood of God's own son who shall one day sit on a throne 
as will every believer according to God's own promise, anybody with a hope of eternal life who's come to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, he will sit with me on my throne and judge the world with me. On thrones, with crowns, every last born-again Christian. You want to talk about who's who in that room? Listen to what F.F. Bruce said about it. Too much white out. (laughs) I make a lot of mistakes. Better there than here, right? (laughs) F.F. Bruce. All these very important people would have been greatly surprised, if not a little indignant, if they could see into the future how later generations would come to view both them and the prisoner before whom they now appeared. Wow. All right, Festus then addresses everybody. It opens the service this way. Your majesty and esteemed guests, welcome. The moment you've been waiting for, here he is. Behold the man. An entire nation is asking me to put him to death. I've examined him. I find nothing deserving of death. I would have released him, but he appealed to Caesar. Now I've got to send him to Rome, but quite frankly, I don't know what to tell the emperor. I have absolutely nothing to say, no charges to file. That's where you come in, especially you king. Maybe you can all tell me what kinds of crimes you find after you're done listening to him that make people want to kill him. There's a hush, a stillness you could feel. The king motions to Paul. Paul's thinking, my whole life, I've lived, I was born, I was created for this moment. It's got the rapt attention of really the world in that region. And he nods. He says, you're free to speak. And sudden, (laughs) what? Unbelievable. (laughs) That's another chapter. I'm just telling you, look at the chapter. It breaks right there. Paul opens his mouth, and he's going to give the speech of a lifetime. But too bad, you'll have to come back next Sunday. (laughs) All right, worship team, where are you? Where are you, worship team? Come on up here. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful example of Paul the Apostle who now reigns with you, seated on a throne. Just, Lord, we don't know exactly how it works. We see through a mirror, as it were, a fogged up glassy window. But we do know, Lord, that he's with you and uh, both you and him look very different than your earthly forms. And we too shall share in your glorious body, the same kind of body that you had, we get to share. So we thank you, God, for all, everything you spoke to our hearts. Help us to sort through it, make sense of it, put it into practice, and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, closing song.